This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Rachel Housel Hall. I'm Don Winslow. This is Allison Galen. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, that's an interesting question. That's an excellent question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Louder. Welcome to the show. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is the handsome one, S.W. Loudon. Steve, who do we have on the show today? Well, first of all, Eric, I'm only handsome by podcast standards, which means nobody actually has to look at me. <laughs> I look at you, and I, and I quite enjoy it. Oh, well, that's nice of you to say, and also a little bit creepy. <laughs> today, author Susanna Calkins has some suggestions of what to do after our interview is over. We can just... Play that game of where to hide the body. And Harry Hunsicker shares the reaction of his loyal fans to him appearing on our show. Uh, I don't get too much hate mail, which I think is a good thing. And we read between the lines of Sherry Harris's much-talked-about blog post about giving cozies more respect and get to the heart of the matter. You two are great. Wait, Steve, was she being sarcastic there? One can only assume, based on our previous experience with guests, that she was being sarcastic, but I think we should take this one, Eric. We need it. You're right. I, I, I need that desperately. <laughs> Thanks, Sherry. <laughs> well, the Malmans also do a check-in from the first Wordplay Book Festival, so I'm looking forward to that. But first, Steve, you read anything interesting lately? Well, it's a happy day over here in uh, Steve Loudonland because Blake Crouch sent us an advanced copy of his new book, Recursion. And as you'll remember, Eric, I was over the moon about his previous book, Dark Matter, which talked about a lot of the same subject matter. They seem to tread a lot of the same ground. Uh, they're not directly connected, but there's a lot of commonalities in the themes of the two books. And I read this thing in a couple of days and it really blew me away. Um, I know you read it too, and I and I wanted to get your opinions about it. I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I mean, it's his, he's gone into this world where he he builds these really complicated, uh, you know, they're kind of deeply scientific, but not really. I mean, there really are very human stories, and it's such an interesting blend of this high-minded science, almost science fiction, and yet it feels really plausible. But at the core of it, it's they're very emotional, they're very character driven. And this one was just almost philosophical while also being a thriller. It was just a, a really bizarre but really satisfying combination. I'm really looking forward to talking to him in our next episode. I'll even go so far as to say that he's kind of positioning himself as the Philip K. Dick of the current generation. Like, I don't feel like there's been anybody else recently, to my knowledge, that's blended the two so effortlessly in such an interesting way. And I, I really think this is two grand slams in a row. I, I love this book. Yeah, we definitely have a lot to talk about. I think that's a very appropriate comparison. And uh, I'll be interested to see what Blake has to say about uh, sort of his motivations behind it. And and also just to figure out what the heck happened. <laughs> it's a real mind bender. Well, Eric, there is no easy transition from Blake Crouch to our first guest, who is Susanna Calkins, author of the Lucy Campion historical mystery set way back in ye olde England. <laughs> well, now she's back with the start of a new series. And while she's still sticking with the history, it's a much more recent history. Murder Knocks Twice takes place in 1929 Chicago at the height of Prohibition. 
your Lucy Campion series is set in 17th century London, but your new speakeasy murders are set in 1920s Chicago. So do you ever get sick from all this time traveling? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, no, you know, it's really funny to me. You know, some people think like, whoa, that's so different. But, you know, I'm a historian by training and I've taught world history from the beginning of time to present. And so like this time period is like, known as the modern era so i'm like oh it's all the same time period but you know of course it's pretty radically different but it's been fun to try something different try a new uh time period one that i'm a little physically closer to <laughs> and actually there's a lot of people who are physically closer to it too so it's actually a really <laughs> interesting time period <laughs> oh did you go out and talk to anybody who's uh, who oh. lived through that time it is totally crazy. I mean, just if I mention that I'm working on a book and set in 1929 Chicago, I mean, there are so many people who have these crazy stories like, well, you know, my grandfather used to cut Al Capone's hair or my grandmother had a bootlegging business out off of Lake Michigan. I mean, it is very lived here, these stories of of prohibition and speakeasies. And, you know, someone sent me a picture of her saying, yeah, we're all at a drugstore counter, but we're really drinking margaritas from, it looks like we're drinking sodas. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> wow, I, I, I totally want to read a book about Al Capone's barber now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, and actually, can I tell you a really quick story? I, I was just admiring this woman's ring. Um, I mean, it was just, it was a red garnet ring. And I said, oh, what a, what a beautiful ring. And she says, well, it was my husband's grandfather's ring and he died with wearing this ring because he had been shot during a gang warfare thing but we really liked it so we decided to make it into a ring for me so they basically took this ring off of his you know dead hand and i just thought wow that's that's pretty lived <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of crazy <laughs> Well, so in, in addition to talking to people, uh, how does your research differ when you're looking into 17th century London than when you're looking into Depression era Chicago? Yeah, so from the, my first period set in 17th century London, I mean, that is the period I have my PhD in. And, you know, so I spent a lot of time, you know, I was reading and writing about it and I was studying what were called murder ballads. People used to sing about murder. Basically, I wrote that book based off of a lot of research that I'd done from the pamphlets and things from the day, true accounts as they called them. So it was a different kind of research, you know, a little more, you know, academic and, and traditional in that sense. But this new research, it really is very different because there's so much more on YouTube and, you know, I can look up how to, how everything worked and it's just there. It's great. I listened to a lot of 20s music, so that kind of worked its way into the book. And I was reading the newspapers of the day. I mean, and of course I can try, I had this goal of trying a hundred prohibition era cocktails. I got to like 37 because I hit the absinthe flavored cocktails and I was like, this is gross. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, my goal, my ambition ended pretty quick. Oh, that's great. I, I love that I had a question about uh, if you had found a favorite cocktail in your research and then you just went there anyway. <laughs> And, and the answer is I love a gin Ricky now and a, or a bourbon Ricky, but I can only drink one and then that's, that's it for me. <laughs> yes, I, I've I've been with you at plenty of conventions and I know that one is your limit, Susie. We'll just, uh, mm -hmm. yes, that sounds right. <laughs> Eric, we, we promised we weren't going to get judgy on this podcast. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I don't do cocktails at conferences. Uh, <laughs> 
for our listeners uh, following along at home, what goes into a gin ricky? Um, gin and ricky. <laughs> I don't actually know. <laughs> Lime, I'm, I think. <laughs> I'm so glad I could be your straight man for that little comedy routine we just did. I don't know. That's a good question. I should know. I will look that up. <laughs> you've, you've done all this research for the book. You couldn't look up the, a simple ingredient. You know, they just go and slam the, you know, their hand on the bar and say, Jin Ricky, you know. <laughs> so that's all you really need to know with the research. Well, okay. You started your Lucy Campion series uh, with a book title that has the word murder in it. And now you've started this speakeasy series and you've used murder again in the title. Ooh. Is this like a superstition thing? <laughs> no, um, but it's really funny. I mean, I no, it wasn't on purpose, but I will say I did notice something, a, a weird similarity about my series. I hadn't realized it, but my first book, Murder at Roseman's Gate, starts with Lucy Campion opening the door and there, it's a constable and he's bringing news of a murder and so this world is coming into her house and then I realized with my with my new series I have Gina Ricci my protagonist knocking on the door you know knocking twice to get into the speakeasy and opening going into this world and I thought I did not mean to do that but it was sort of it's funny to me that both of my books sort of have this entryway Wow. Well, I think I would. it almost suits the eras because you move up into the late 20s and here's this woman who's maybe being a little more assertive, a little yeah. more mm -hmm. forceful. And it makes sense that she would be entering that world instead yeah. of it coming to her. Yeah. I, think, I think you should claim that this is on purpose, Susie. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be like, it's totally deliberate. <laughs> and I yeah. do like to circle back. I mean, I do end where I, almost all my books end where they start because to me, it's like a, it's a neat thing to sort of circle. Well, all right, Susie, when I met you years and years ago, you were all wide-eyed and just about to publish your, your first book. And yeah. I, uh, frankly, you you spent a lot of time acting like like you didn't belong at the party. And we, yeah. all, thought, we all told you you were crazy. I mean, now after all of these books, you, you have this body of work, you have multiple series now. Do you finally feel like you belong at the table like we all knew all along? Yeah, you know, it is a funny thing. I would say yes and no. I mean, sometimes I think I'm, I'm still not really part of the, the party party. Like, I think there's another party that's going on that I'm not part of. But I mean, I really, truly love the mystery writing community. I think, I actually think, Eric, you may have been at one of those first big moments at the conference that I know that I was like, I found my people. Like, oh, yeah. People who want to just be up all night and talking. Like, we can just play that game of where to hide the body or... or, or <laughs> Or the other day, I was telling people, because my second book is going to be called Poison at the Third Door. And so at the most recent conference we were at, we were all practicing, like, how exactly can you, if you have a glass, a cocktail on a bar, like, how hard would it be to actually walk by and put some poison in it and stir it and then walk away with no one seeing it? And so, you know, everybody's, like, practicing different maneuvers. And I was like, you know, who else would do this except friends? <laughs> And I realized it too when one day people, it was very terrible, people were talking about exactly how many Ziploc bags you'd need if you were trying to cut up a dead body and everybody <laughs> was, and they were all working it out. And then there was this moment where we're like, yeah, this might be kind of gross to other people. <laughs> well, St Steve, how many did it take you that one time? Uh, I got it. I got it down to 128. I don't know what you guys are doing, but um, <laughs> well, you were being a little coy about it, talking about the most recent conference you were at. But you had a short story from the 2018 Bauschikan anthology called 
a postcard from the dead that was nominated for an Agatha award. Congratulations. You. Um, you also have a short story in the recent Murder A Go-Go's anthology, which yeah. Eric and I are both in. And since mm -hmm. we've had, I think, almost every contributor <laughs> to that anthology has now been on this podcast. Awesome. Can you tell us why did, why did you pick the song You Thought? Well, I will say that I owe Holly that honor um, because I actually already had a short story that, I mean, I haven't, I've written like three short stories, um, but I had that one. So I asked Holly, is there any way we can work this one in? Because I just didn't have time to write a brand new one right away. And I thought if it worked, I said, and I gave her the premise and she said, oh, it sounds like you thought would be really great for that. Well, hold up a second. Hold up. I, I appreciate all your honesty with your answer to that question, but something really caught my attention, which was you've written three short stories and one of them was nominated for an Agatha Award? Is, is, it, is it terrible to say that my first one was nominated for an Anthony? So but, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's totally terrible. I'm sorry. No, that's, I think you should be teaching a master class at this point. <laughs> Well, Susie, this has been great. Uh, we, we've made it. It's 9 a.m. So uh, I, the drinking lamp is lit. So you go have a uh, gin ricky. And, uh... <laughs> For the record, Steve, a gin ricky contains two ounces of gin, two tablespoons of lime juice, over four ounces of club soda, and garnished with a lime wedge. Nobody loves a drink recipe more than when it comes from a sober guy. <laughs> I'm just trying to educate our listeners. I mean, the whole point of this podcast when we started it was to educate, right? I don't think we ever specifically talked about recipes, which actually gets us into cozy land, which we'll address later on. <laughs> well, next up, we have the author of one of my favorite book series going right now, Harry Hunsicker, whose new Arlo Baines thriller, Texas Sicario, is out right now. Harry's from Texas, writes about Texas, and loves all things, you guessed it, Texas except for maybe one particular Texas Ranger who I really hope isn't listening to this episode. All right, well, Harry, uh, Arlo Baines is back for more with your new novel, Texas Sicario. And you started the first book, The Devil's Country, with Arlo he, in a pretty bad place. He's He's been run out of the Texas Rangers. <laughs> His family's been killed. He starts low. Why was it important for you to start his story in that really dark place? I wanted to start a story. I wanted to have a story that was not uh, bogged down with a strong sense of place. Most of my books are, uh, are in Dallas, and I wanted to get a character out of Dallas and in a place that he didn't know anything about. So I wanted him to have no resources because the way he is, his character is he has lost his family and his job and he's got nothing. And now he is in a sense lost his place of being. So he is in a completely, it's not alien, but for lack of a better word, it's an alien kind of a terrain. So he's got nothing but what's in him, inside himself. And so I wanted, I was trying to do something fresh and new for me anyway. It works because I love these books. Thank you. I'll just get that out of the way right at the top here. <laughs> Arlo isn't just an, your standard ex-cop. Uh, he's an ex-Texas Ranger. What does that mean to Texans? A lot of stuff goes into being a Texas Ranger. I mean, they're they're a mythical type of an organization. And the, the, uh, 
the motto for the Texas Rangers way back when was one riot, one Ranger. So they can handle anything, which is really kind of silly. If you've got a riot, one person can't handle that. But nonetheless, that was the motto for years and years. So they are kind of the special forces of law enforcement. And Texans uh, tend to have a lot of pride in Texas. And so they have a lot of pride in the Texas Rangers. So I wanted to make him something other than just a regular beat cop or a federal agent. I have to ask, are there any pitfalls to writing about the Texas Rangers uh, after Chuck Norris became the face of the division? I totally forgot about that. <laughs> How could you forget about Chuck Norris <laughs> as Taiwan? <laughs> you know, that show was, uh, that was a huge success, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> what? <laughs> I hope Chuck Norris isn't listening or anything <laughs> that show, but it was not, you know... Well, it wasn't up to the level of The Sopranos, let's say. <laughs> Harry, I'd say, I hate to break. We try not to be political on this show, and I, that's that might just be a step too far for our listeners. <laughs> well, listen, you've you've had uh, two previous trilogies: the John Cantrell thrillers and the Lee Henry Oswald books. Yeah. Does, does that mean that we can expect only three Arlo Baines novels? Uh, right now, I have envisioned it as only two. Oh, okay. Uh, Arlo could come back. I think I like the I like the balance of a three of a trilogy, uh, the three acts, if you will. But right now, I only see him as a twofer. Oh well, this now I'm sad. Well, I'm sorry. You know, I I, I make a lot of people sad on a daily. <laughs> quite honest, so I I'm sorry. Not the least of which are Chuck Norris fans. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of them out there. Chuck Norris is a fine individual. (laughs) Well, all your work takes place in Texas. So what would a New York City Harry Hunsicker novel look like? Oh, a guy trying to get to Texas, probably. (laughs) Um, I'm drawn to novels that have a strong sense of place. I love James Lee Burke novels. Uh, because of that. Uh, and I know Texas pretty well, so that's why I've set them all here. And I think there's a lot of territory to explore in Texas, um, even though there's a lot of people writing about Texas. Uh, I like to put my spin on You mentioned earlier that Texans are very proud of their state. Uh, what do they generally think about the novels that you set there? Uh, I don't get too much hate mail, which I think <laughs> is a good thing. <laughs> my first series was about a... Uh, private eye named Lee Henry Oswald in Dallas, no, no relation to Lee Harvey Oswald, the cross he has to bear. So you get some interesting emails because of that. There, I got a lot of stuff about people wanting to tell me the truth about the, the Kennedy assassination and all that. And so, uh, but mostly I get positive response about certain things in, uh, in Texas. Uh, occasionally people say, my gosh, you make Dallas look so bad. You make this you make a bad part of Dallas look really bad. And I said, well, I, just the way I see it. I mean, I'm not trying to, to run down anything. I just, it's my take on things. Well, okay. We'll give Dallas the edge with barbecue, but even you, Harry, have to admit that LA wins in tacos, right? I would say that. I don't know. Austin's pretty good in the taco world, but I, I would, I would, I, I won't fight you on that. Okay. On that. Are you guys coming to BoucherCon? Unfortunately, not. Okay. Well, I would take you. I would take you taco and barbecue uh, hunting if you were. Well, that, now I'm reconsidering. Okay. <laughs> I just bought my ticket because he said that. They're all good. Good. <laughs> Thank you. 
In Dallas, you're far from the border, but in Texas, Sicario, the effects of the drug war along the border starts creeping north. Has that been your experience? Is that what's actually happening in Texas? I think that is actually happening. I really do. I think the border is changing. Um, Dallas is right on I-35, which is an NAFTA highway, and there's this huge interstate system coming through. And I've talked to people in law enforcement, and they say they drugs just come straight up, and it's like a spokes on a wheel in Dallas and Fort Worth, and they just go out from here. So uh, there's a lot of, from what I hear, a lot of cartel activity uh, or a lot of drug smuggling activity in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which makes sense. There's a lot of legitimate business activity here. So, And the cartels uh, and drug smuggling at the end of the day is just a business action activity. It's a very bad one, but still. So of all the characters that you've created, do you think you have a, a more personal relationship to Arlo like over John Cantrell or Lee Henry Oswald? Or are all these guys sort of different facets of, of yourself in there? So I think they're different facets of myself. I think I probably have the strongest relationship with Lee Oswald, Lee Henry Oswald, the fictional character to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's the strongest because he's a Dallas guy. And, uh, well, they all are, but I mean, he stays and works in Dallas. And, and, and you're staying no matter what. If, if, if you got a, a great job offer or Hollywood came calling, there's no way you'd relocate to L.A. You're Texas born and bred. Well, it depends on what that offer's like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Texas is home. Dallas is home, so yes. But never say never. Well, I wonder if Hollywood comes calling and they might think Chuck Norris could be Arlo Baines. And... That fellas, Chuck, Chuck's getting a little, he's getting a little long in the tooth, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, how old is he now? You see, he, he might be a little, a little north of uh, Arlo age. <laughs> In his 70s, right, at least. He's got to be. He's got to yeah. be. Could still kick my ass. He could still kick my ass. He probably will kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, I think uh, we just made Chuck Norris a shit list. I hope that everything people say about what a badass he is in real life isn't true, because he will end us. <laughs> well, I want to do a little more fact-checking here uh, and confirm th that we are truly an educational show. Chuck Norris is currently 79 years old. And yet, he could still end us. <laughs> I agree. Well... In the time we have left before Chuck Norris comes kicking down our door, we go now to the Malmans who sent us this report from the grounds of the brand new Wordplay Book Festival. Well, they were there to take in a full day of books and other fun stuff, and this was finally Dan's chance to stalk his favorite author, Stephen King. Uh, Eric, I think you meant to say talk. You, you just said stalk. Oh, no, I, I know what I said. Everybody, it's Kate and Dan, and we are getting ready to head out to the inaugural Wordplay Book Festival in Minneapolis. Some of the authors that are expected to be there are Scott Turow, Amy Tan, Rachel Housel Hall, and Stephen King. Dan's really excited to go see Stephen King. Before we head out, Dan, why do you like Stephen King? When I was like in high school, there really wasn't a category called YA. You know, my freshman year of high school. My friends and I, we would get together uh, in the school library and we'd pretty much um, start reading the shelf, all the K's from the left side all the way to the right side. I'm already a kid that's reading comics, 
really suck at gym class. So, I mean, you take somebody like that and you fill them up with Firestarter, Carrie, The Dead Zone, and already you're reading stuff like dark political science, conspiracy theorist, Twilight Zone style stories, and you're going to get somebody that's uh, impressionable at a young age. So this is a big deal for me. I'm super excited. Are you creating a special balloon suit so you can like hover over the stage to drop in and, and meet Stephen King? I call it my Pennywise suit. So I'm just filling up a whole bunch of red balloons with helium, float over the crowd, and yell out, I'm your biggest fan, as loud as I can. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to end up in jail. But just in case, I'm calling all of you out there in a podcast land for bail. So stay tuned to see if we end up in wordplay jail, real jail, or just in the back of the room being very quiet, nervous, and shy. See you soon. I'm Terry Karsten, and today I'm here with my book, A Mistake of Consequence, which is a, a historical novel set in 1754 um, about a young woman kidnapped from the docks of Scotland and sold in the American colonies as an indentured servant, ends up getting accused of killing her master. So she has to find her way home. <laughs> okay, so we're here at Wordplay in Minneapolis, set in the Midwest. So what makes the Midwest such a great spot for readers and writers, specifically of mystery fiction? The Midwest has an awful lot of hidden places. <laughs> um, the history and the, the area of the Midwest is not nearly as well known as some of the coasts. And so it's a great place to, to explore different cultures and different ways of looking at where crime happens. I am Michael A. Black from Chicago. I'm currently pushing my book, Blood Trails, which I've written under my own name, and I also write the Executioner series under the name Don Pendleton. So you're from the Midwest, and we're here in the Midwest. What makes the Midwest so great for mystery writing? Well, the Midwest is great because we have all the variation of all four seasons, and it's also the sort of the birthplace of organized crime. So we have a lot of, uh, a lot of history to drop on. Christine Husum from Buffalo, Minnesota, and I write two mystery series set right in the county, right next to Hennepin County. So Wright County, thinly disguised as Winnebago County and the Winnebago County Mysteries. I also have a cozy mystery series, the Snow Globe Shop Mysteries. They're cozy, but not too cozy. Okay, so your books are set in the Midwest. You write in the Midwest. What makes the Midwest such a great spot to set murder mysteries? I can only really speak for Minnesota, but people tend to, to really support the artistic community, you know, the creative community. We have more mystery authors per capita in Minnesota than any other state. So we've got, you know, our readers are smart people. They like to solve crimes, and they also like justice. They want that bad guy to get caught and put in jail. <laughs> I'm Shelly Kubitz-Mahana. I am a board member of uh, Mystery Writers of America Midwest Chapter. What makes the Midwest so, you know, rife for mystery writers and readers is honestly probably the cold winters, the places where we can bury bodies, and then just honestly, the state of Minnesota and the Midwest in general um, really does put a precedence on enabling, you know, artists and writers. We have a lot of wonderful programs in place that, uh, you know, facilitates art. And so it's, it's a great time to be an artist or writer in uh, the Midwest because we have wonderful readers and, again, long winters. 
Do you think the long winters help to make that community because we spend so much time by ourselves that we're just happy to see other people? That could very well be part of it, yes. And what is it about these long winters that make people want to tell stories about killing each other? You have to have a pretty, like interesting constitution to to thrive and survive these long midwestern winters and you know storytelling is kind of a art where we're entertaining each other so those of us who tell stories about you know where the bodies are buried might be a little bit more uh, twisted than the rest of us hey this is jordan harper uh i wrote the novel she writes shotgun and someday i hope to write something else and and finish it but like let's not get ahead of ourselves and I'm here to talk about what makes a good writer community, which I think the, the best thing you can do to have a good community is to, to freely intermix and, and learn how to be honest with each other and give notes to each other in a way that is um, like Tim Gunn does it on Project Runway. I watch a lot of Project Runway because I think I've never seen anybody be able to give uh, advice to creative people that is both extremely empathetic and extremely honest at the same time. And I'm not joking at all. I think he is masterful at it. I've had editors, fellow TV writers, executives give me notes, and I've had to give notes to a lot of people. And I really think the ability to, to do both those things, both be honest and kind at the same time, is like uh, the, the most important gift that anybody can have if you really want to like foster each other and help each other. Dan and Kate here, live from Wordplay on the grounds in Minneapolis. So we just finished up seeing Stephen King being interviewed by Ben Percy, had a burrito, had some time to get our thoughts about us. So Dan, what did you think of the interview? It was absolutely everything I wanted it to be and nothing that I expected it to be. Stephen King is always going to be a larger than life presence in my, my DNA, in my pop culture makeup, you know, to kind of set the stage. The gates opened at nine, and we ended up being third, fourth uh, in a makeshift mob line. Uh, but everybody was super chill. Everybody was there for the same thing. It was, uh, like you said, Kate, very much authors are these people's rock stars. Uh, and that's the attitude everybody had. Everybody was cordial and kind and knew it was close quarters and no one was pushing. There was no crowd surfing? Well, I, I tried to because I was wearing my balloon suit as I hung over the crowd like the uh, inflatable pig in a Pink Floyd concert, still screaming, I'm your biggest fan. And when he came out, we could tell it was going to be a relaxed, fun interview because before they came all the way out, uh, Ben Percy and Stephen King were taking pictures and laughing and talking with the security guards. Everybody was, was there for the same thing, even the people working the crowd. Um, I had a blast and it's something I'm, I'm never gonna forget. Well, that was a damn shame that they did not get to talk to Stephen King, Steve. I'm starting to doubt the power of the writer types press pass. You know, Eric, I'm going to go a different way with this and say that I think Stephen King and Chuck Norris are listening to this episode together right now. <laughs> that is two people we do not want to be on the wrong side of. Well, this may be our last episode. <laughs> You know we love hot-button topics on the show. Recently, we saw an article written by author Sherry Harris, which called out the writing community for being unkind to cozy authors. Well, we knew right away we had to talk to Sherry to clear this up and to stand up for authors no matter what you write. All right, so Sherry Harris is with us. Uh, and Sherry, you are the author of the Sarah Winston Garage Sale Mystery Series, which could uh, be described as a cozy 
mystery series. And we read an interesting article that you wrote where you sort of took the mystery and writing community to task a little bit because of all the put downs of the cozy genre. Tell us what, uh, what set you off. Oh, I think it was just an accumulation of things. I had gone to a lot of conferences and I was a little tired and I just heard so many comments over the years about, you know, they're not real books and they don't have any value. And I just had heard enough of it and I was a little annoyed. <laughs> As somebody who might have on occasion <laughs> had a little fun at the cozy community's expense, although I don't think I ever went as far as to say they weren't real books or that the genre doesn't count. But I might have had some fun with puns and cats and that kind of thing. How, how do I, as a hard-boiled writer, uh, make amends to you? Uh, I don't think you have to make amends. I just kind of wrote the blog. I didn't think it would become a big deal. And... Um, I think the thing is, and you know it, I think most authors know this, that writing is hard. All writing is hard. People put down poetry, people put down romance writers. And I, I just wanted to say and have everyone say, you're right, writing is hard. What, what made me feel kind of bad is then readers were saying, oh, I get put down for buying these books or checking them out of the library. And, and that's even worse to me. Well, a million times worse. Right, yeah. right. Well, the, the thing, I'll, I'm will i going to jump in with what impresses me about the, the traditional mystery. I've, I have discovered, and I discovered early on, that when you are really mapping out those unraveling puzzles over the course of a novel like that, I, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> <laughs> to be able to hold a reader in suspense for you know 250 300 pages while you're dropping clues that aren't completely obvious i mean it's there is a lot of almost math involved in in writing these traditional mysteries right right there is i think sometimes i've done it successfully and sometimes i always feel like there's one clue in there that everybody's going to go aha i knew that's who it was so it is like playing a game with your readers and do you ever feel like uh, you ever feel a little bad for manipulating them if you're trying to sort of point the finger at somebody, but then at the last second you go, aha, but no, it was this other guy. <laughs> Not as long as I've laid it all out there. You know, I, I wouldn't want to at the last minute have some complete stranger come in and, oh, it was him. That was never in the story. That would be unfair. But as long as everybody has a good chance of figuring it out, then I'm okay with it. it. Like, how about this? Is it more satisfying to have a reader come up and say, "Oh, you completely fooled me with this one, and I never would have guessed"? Or do, is it kind of fun to have somebody say, "Oh, I figured it out. I knew it. You didn't fool me." <laughs> I hate it when they say that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to fool everybody. <laughs> <laughs> including the people in your own life <laughs> especially them <laughs> <laughs> so you're not you're not a trustworthy person is what we're getting here apparently not <laughs> i gave um, my husband my second book and he was going on some trip 
And for some reason, just as he left, I told him he who did it. And this was, you know, like four or five years ago. And every time I mentioned something about my books, he'll go, oh, yeah, you're going to tell me who did it again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should just start lying to him and uh, let him figure it out when he reads the book. And then you could test him to see if he actually read the book. Oh, oh excellent point. Excellent point. You two are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's the mystery writer's mind. Yeah. Yeah, we're good at setting traps for our loved ones. <laughs> well, look, Sherry, I, I personally love music and it's something that Eric and I bond over. And so consequently, a lot of my crime fiction, although it's more on the hard boiled end, revolves around music. And from an outsider's perspective, I, I it seems to me that a lot of cozies are driven by the author's specific interests like garage sales or wine or cooking or pets. But I don't see that as much on the hard boiled end of the spectrum. Do you think that that's true for cozy writers? It is to some extent, but you would be surprised about by the number of cozy writers who know nothing about what they're writing about. <laughs> you know, they research it like anyone else would do for another book. I happen to love garage sales, so it was perfect for me, but I will not spill the secrets that I know about authors. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I went through uh, and looked at the titles of your Sarah Winston garage sales series, and yeah. uh, the titles of these books are amazing. Uh, the Gun Also Rises, I Know What You Bid Last Summer, A Good Day to Buy, All Murders Final, the Longest Yard Sale, and the first book, Tagged for Death. So can you tell me when puns in titles became so prevalent in the cozy universe? I don't know, to tell you the truth. So I wrote my first book in 2013, and it was a thing by then. So well, that's a really good question. <laughs> And we're gonna have to do our research because I'm obsessed with the fact that they they seemingly it's an endless well that authors can pull from. Or are, are all of your titles yours, or does the publisher feed you some? My editor and I go the rounds about titles sometimes. Um, I came up with "Tagged for Death" because in um, New England, yard sales are called tag sales. Right. And I had some terrible title for the second one, and he changed that to the longest yard sale, which was much more clever. Well, all right. So to, to close out here, in in your travels uh, of garage sailing or tag sailing uh, in, over your life, what's the most mysterious thing you've ever found in a somebody else's junk? Oh, the most mysterious thing. That's an excellent question. Um, I was helping Donna Andrews, who writes a long-running cozy mystery series with a yard sale, and um, she had a necklace that was a Victorian, Victorian morning necklace, so it had hair on one side of it that's braided, and she had no idea, you know, it was in her family things, but she didn't know where it came from or who it had belonged to, but people used to wear them after their loved ones died. So I wow. thought that was pretty interesting. 
And did that make it into one of your books? Of course it did. Of course it did. What was I thinking? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Sherry, thank you for joining us. And this is a call to all of our listeners. Give Cozy some damn respect, will you? <laughs> thank you so much. It's great talking to you both. Well, Steve, I have to admit, we don't have the goods to educate our listeners on this one. Pinpointing the exact moment when puns became the standard for cozy titles has been hard to find. If any listeners out there have the answer, find us on Twitter at WriterTypes and please let us know the answer. Well, Steve, we had a lot of laughs and we definitely taught the listeners some things, but what did we learn this time? Susanna Calkins taught us that you don't have to know how to make a drink in order to enjoy it. Harry Hunsicker taught us that Chuck Norris is a fine actor and a gentleman who should not find our address and come kick our asses. And Sherry Harris taught all of us to respect authors no matter what they write. And really, Sherry taught us the most valuable lesson of all. Excellent point. You two are great. You'd really be helping us out if you drop by iTunes or Stitcher and drop us a rating or leave a review. It helps people to find the show. Or at the very least, just tell all your book-loving friends about writer types. Well, this show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Mm-hmm.